All right, well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to our first Sunday School of the New Year, since we were still on hiatus uh, last week on, on New Year's Day, so welcome, everybody, and let's, uh, uh, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we, well, we thank you for this day that you've given us, that we've set aside to worship you, and uh, we just uh, ask that you would help us as we look into your word, as we study together. Again, thank you for the opportunity to meet and to fellowship and to, and, and to uh, uh, learn your word. Uh, help us. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we are... Um, Technically, we're supposed to start a new trimester of uh, a new, new, new class, but I'm cheating just a little bit, and because I organized the schedule, I'm, I'm able to do that. I'm able to cheat a little bit, and so, so we're doing that. We've been studying doctrine, doctrines of grace uh, using Bruce Demarest's uh, book, uh, The Cross and Salvation, which is also a book that's used in, in BTI, and... Um, uh, I was supposed to teach in early December, and I didn't uh, didn't quite get here that Sunday, uh, due due to being down for the count for a while, and so I'm gonna uh, I'm I'm gonna finish up that uh, particular lesson, or I'm gonna do that lesson that I was going to teach. We will start a new series next week. It'll be uh, the title is "Unlikely Heroes of the Faith," and we will be using some characters that. Uh, you don't hear a lot about the biblical characters that don't get a lot of don't get a lot of press as much as some of the other guys, and so we'll be looking uh, at uh, unlikely heroes of the faith beginning next Sunday. I think that Darren, and so Darren, if you're in your office listening right now, I think Darren's up next week uh, on that. He's probably he probably just jumped out of his seat when he heard that, so <laughs> and uh, so that will start next uh, next Sunday. So. I'm going to finish up um, with the, the doctrines, the doctrines of grace, and what I'm going to talk about today is the doctrine of union with Christ. Doctrine of union with union with Christ. It's also known as the um, the um, identification with Christ or incorporation into Christ. But we've we've studied, we've been studying various doctrines uh, involved in our salvation. And uh, today we're going to be looking at some of the the intricacies of of these doc, of, of of all of this together. So not only is this the study of the doctrine of union of Christ, there'll be a little bit of a little bit of review and tying things together here. But um, it, it's easy easy to forget uh, the intricacies of our salvation, or not even realize how intricate our salvation is, and not that. Not that our salvation depends on that, depends on knowing all the little details, but it's kind of interesting. And as I studied, I, I thought about our own creation and uh, the attention to detail of our own birth, for example. And just as we were wonderfully and fearfully made, we were also wonderfully and fearfully saved also. And... Um, If nothing else, the study of these doctrines of grace, of salvation, display to us another uh, facet of God's love and his attention to detail. And again, as I I thought about this, I thought of Psalm 139. I won't read the whole psalm, but just uh, uh, this section of it, where we read starting in verse 13 of Psalm 139. For you formed my inward parts. 
You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. You saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, and how vast the sum of them. And if I could count them, they are more than the sand. I awake and I am still with you. And then he goes on, but... um, talking about our our birth, but we can also easily think about our own salvation with those words also, and the the new birth that we enjoy in Christ Jesus. Now the definition, the simple definition of union with Christ, and I took this simple definition from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. So a simple definition of union with Christ is the life of Christ raised, glorified, and dwelling within the believer. We are in Christ, Christ is in us, we are like Christ, and we are with Christ. This is also known as identification with Christ or incorporation into Christ. In the history of Christianity, this this has been described as the mystical union. And this mystical union uh, terminology comes from the language used by Paul in Ephesians chapter 5. And he's, uh, actually, he's talking about marriage, but he's also talking about the church at the same time. And so in, in Ephesians chapter 5, verses, uh, starting in verse 28, In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. Because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is, this mystery, so here's the mystery language, this mystery is profound, and I'm saying uh, that it refers to Christ and the church. And so, um, so this, the whole mystery of how is one united to Christ? How does that happen? And Paul says it's kind of a mystery. <laughs> uh, he, he, uh, there are several times when the, the word mystery is used. He also uses the, the mystery that the Gentiles could be saved, that the Gentiles could be part of the church, because if you were a Jew, that was a mystery. Like, if you're a Jew, it's like, how does that happen? I mean, Jews are, you know, we're the only guy, we're the only game in town, right? No. <laughs> You're not. Gentiles are part of the church also. Can be part of the church when they are saved. And so that's another uh, mystery that Paul referred to uh, in, in his letters. And so the, the union with Christ has familiar New Testament uh, analogies throughout. And a few of the analogies that we see of a, of a believer being uh, depicted in Christ, some of those would be the the, uh, the analogy of the vine and the branches. Uh, in John chapter fifteen, the uh, comparison of the the union that the Father has with the Son, 
that's also given as to the, to the believer in, in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. So that, the, that analogy, which is uh, specifically, very specifically given in John 14 and John 17. Um, the fact that Jesus is the cornerstone and we are the living stone. So that cornerstone, living stone analogy uh, is given in Ephesians 2 and also in 1 Peter 2. The, um, the human body analogy, that we are all parts of, a, of, of one body, and those passages. And as we just saw, the, the analogy of marriage between a husband and a wife. Unfortunately, Christians sometimes think of Christ as our Savior outside of us, rather than in us. Somebody, uh, someone who dwells within us. But there's no mistaking the, the New Testament emphasis of Christ living within us. Paul used a form of in Christ 216 times in his biblical writings, and John used a form of them, a, 20, a, a form of that same term in Christ 26 times. And so I made a list of all those right here. Uh, so I'm going to go through and read all 242 of those. No, I'm not. I will not read all. But I just thought it was interesting just to kind of allude to a couple. Uh, for example, in Romans, so I'll just pick a couple at random. Romans 12.5. So we being many are one body in Christ and everyone, um, uh, and everyone members of one another. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1.2. Um, Unto the church of God which is at Corinth to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus called to be saints and so on. First uh, Corinthians fifteen twenty two for as in Adam all die even so in Christ shall all be made alive and a verse that's very familiar to many of us to all of us at Grace Bible Church Colossians one twenty eight whom we preach warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus and so we uh, we have that terminology of being in Christ throughout the. Uh, it's it's kind of hard to read uh, scripture in the New Testament without bumping into the terminology of being in Christ or being united with Christ, incorporated uh, into Christ. So, what's the nature of this union, though? How does this work <laughs> exactly? How does Christ live within us? How do we abide in Christ? How can a person reside in or be united to another person? How does this how does this work? How can an infinite God reside in a finite and sinful man? How does that happen? How does the infinite reside in the finite? How does union with Christ occur? How does this happen? What are the outcomes? As we've been studying um, soteriology, doctrines of grace, the doctrine of salvation in this uh, trimester, um, where does union with Christ fall in the order of salvation because there is a particular order in how things happen we'll talk about that in a minute is union with christ a discrete that is a particular specific step in the scheme of salvation and in the doctrines of grace or is our union with christ an all-encompassing aspect of our salvation that is ever-present ubiquitous in every aspect of salvation well, the doctrines of grace that we have been studying may be thought of as an order of events 
which taken together comprises our salvation from our election to begin with in eternity past to our glorification when Christ returns. Now, this list is called the order of salvation or the ordo, ordo salutis in Latin. Ordo salutis, the order of salvation. We've been studying these events uh, in, as we've had this class, the doctrines of grace. Uh, most evangelical theologians would agree on this particular order. And notice that I'm not including union with Christ. That's the topic today is union with Christ. How are we united with Christ? How does this work? And I'm going to list the order of salvation, and I'm not going to include union with Christ yet. So, the order of salvation. This is, if, if we were in a biology class, we, we, this would be like studying all the little details of cell. This is like cell biology, all the little parts. And I'm looking at uh, Drew Bissell back there, and I know that he knows all about biology. And so, I don't know all the parts of a cell off the top of my head. I know there's stuff. You know, there's a nucleus, there's mitochondria, I think, and there's little things floating around. So there's all these details that make up a cell, right? And here are all the details that make up uh, our salvation, the, the biology uh, as it would be of, of, of our salvation. First, our election. God chooses us. We are elected from eternity past. So that's number one. Then we have our divine calling, or the effectual calling, where the gospel is proclaimed and received. We hear it, and we receive it, or the effectual calling. And then regeneration, being born again, being made new, being made pure, regeneration. Conversion, faith and repentance. And then our justification, we are given Legal standing, correct, right legal standing before the Lord in our justification. And then we are adopted into God's family, our adoption. We are, we are members of the family. And then throughout our life we are sanctified. Basically those would be the works that we were saved to do. The good works that we were saved to do. Our sanctification, um, our perseverance, our preservation. We remain in Christ. We're his. And he doesn't let go of us. We persevere to the end, those of us who are in Christ, who are united with Christ. And then finally, our death. We go home to be with the Lord. And then finally, our complete glorification, we receive a resurrected body. Now, items two through six, our divine calling, the effectual calling up through our adoption, um, that's typically what we would be call becoming a Christian. I became a Christian. I accepted the call, so to speak. Or I was called. I was called and I believed. And of course, we know that that believing only came because of Christ allowed us to. And we'll, we'll allude to that more as we continue. But items two through six, the effectual calling, the regeneration, the conversion, our justification, our, our adoption, all of that... Um, generally happens simultaneously and instantly. Boom. You're saved. You became a Christian. And then items 7 and 8, our sanctification and our perseverance, our preservation, those work themselves out over our lifetime. As after we become a Christian, we progress in our sanctification uh, and we um, 
and in our perseverance, we, we persevere to the end. And then finally we die. We go to be with the Lord. And at the time of Christ's returning, we receive a glorified body. We receive a glorified body. But where does union with Christ fit in this order of events? So I've just laid out the, the ordo salutis, the order of salvation from election to glorification and everything in between. Uh, but where does union with Christ fit in here? On the, on the one hand, um, you could say that every aspect of salvation and every aspect of God's relationship to believers is connected to our relationship with Christ. But on the other hand, what's the need for any stepped past election if I'm in Christ from the beginning? If I'm in Christ from the, from the get-go, I've, I've been elected, and I'm fully in Christ, then why all the other stuff? Why all the other things in the order? Why the need for that if I'm in Christ from the beginning? Now, before we answer that question completely... I want to look at some historical interpretations of what union with Christ means from a couple of other perspectives. First of all, um, the ontological view. Does anybody know what the word ontological means? Ontology? Exactly. Nobody knows what that is. <laughs> well, there might be a few of you know. Basically, when we say ontology, we mean the study of existence, the study of being. I'm kind of looking at a bunch of ontological people right now because you exist. So <laughs> that's, very, that's pretty simplistic. But, <laughs> but the study of being or the study of existence is what uh, ontology is. So the on, ontological viewpoint, the, the study of, of being in Christ, of that even existing, of us existing in Christ. What does, how, does that, uh, how does that fit? The, the verse that those that take this kind of viewpoint would point to would be in Galatians. In uh, Galatians, a uh, familiar verse to us, Galatians 2.20. And Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I exist in Christ. That's the existence thing. But Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That would be the go-to verse for an ontological existence type of viewpoint. Well, this viewpoint plays heavily into the mystical side of the union. And of course, we know that it is mystical. Paul uses that terminology. And so this, this plays into that side of it, suggesting, though, that a person is totally absorbed into the divine life. We are completely absorbed in Christ. This union would involve experience of, of ecstasy, of suspension of human faculties. It's almost like you, you no longer have a human self anymore. You are totally wrapped up. It's almost like you are God. A person enters uh, a new order of life so high and so harmonious with the reality of God that it can only be called divine. A person is completely lost in God as if a small drop, just like a small drop of water would totally be lost in a giant vat of, say, wine. 
drop a little tiny drop of water in, it's like it's gone. And not even there. Uh, the ontological view, the existence viewpoint, before birth, men were uh, one in essence with God. Before our birth, we were one in essence with God. We existed with God uh, at, even before our birth. And, were, and we were basically God in God at that point. Uh, union uh, with Christ returns a man to this state. If you are united with Christ as a here on earth, you refer to the, you, you basically revert back to that state of being God in God. A man for, totally forgets his sinful self and loses himself in God. All human desires are taken from him as he is, as he is immersed in the divine will. Now, most of you, I would say, are in Christ. You are a believer. Okay? Um, I would say that this audience is pretty much made up of believers. Would you say that that has been your experience? That you have totally lost your sinful self? That you have totally forgot sin? Well, I'm going to make it easy for you. If, if you're saying yes, you're lying to yourself. The answer is no. Okay? <laughs> that doesn't happen. <laughs> that does not happen. And that's the problem with this viewpoint. It really um, it, uh, it raises what we would sometimes call antinomianism. Antinomianism means no law for me. I'm, I'm good. <laughs> Basically, it means I can do anything I want. I'm above the law. I'm above the law. I'm like God. I'm like God. And so I'm, 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 I'm good. And so obviously there are problems with the ontological viewpoint of, uh, of, of union with Christ, of basically being made like God, and I'm free from sin, and the bottom line is, well, I can do anything I want. Another viewpoint in union with Christ would be a viewpoint held by the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans. And uh, the, with them, the union with Christ would be called a, the sacramental union. It's based on the sacraments, particularly uh, baptism and communion. If we uh, look over to John six fifty three, so let me flip over there. John six. Okay, uh, I'll start with verse fifty two and just read a, read a few verses. In John six fifty two, the Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, "How can this man give us his flesh to eat?" And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in him. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now, of course, the Catholics take that literally. That when you take communion, you really are, that becomes the actual flesh and blood of Christ, and you're united with him in that way. And so that's, to a, to a Catholic... That's how you become united in Christ. The Catholic union of Christ is that a man is united via baptism and communion. The church, headed by the Pope in the Catholic faith, um, uh, the church is an extension or a continuation of the incarnation. We are literally, uh, and, and, and uh, there is some truth to that, we are the body of Christ. We, we even as evangelicals, have that point of view. But uh, the, the Catholics take that even farther. 
The church is the mystical embodiment of Christ on earth. And through the sacraments of baptism and communion, participants are united to Christ and united to his body. Baptism is the means of incorporating a person in Christ. Baptism becomes what we would call regeneration. When you're baptized, that's when you're made new. That's basically your born-again part in, uh, of the order of salvation if you're a Roman Catholic. Uh, baptism becomes the sacrament of regeneration. Communion, the person receives Christ. He is received into Christ, and he is received into the body of Christ. When you take communion, literally taking the bread and the, and the wine, becoming the flesh and blood of Christ, you are literally flesh and blood in Christ. And in Catholicism, the sacraments don't remind us of anything. And of course, as evangelicals, that is the viewpoint that we take, is this is a remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Do this in remembrance of me. Uh, but in, for the Catholic uh, sacraments, it's not a case of, of reminding us of anything. Uh, this is how the church is actually extended. This is how you are entered into the church is through baptism. You enter into the church when you're baptized and the, uh, the preservation of the body through uh, communion and you're united with Christ. Basically works. You have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do this if you're going to remain in Christ. Another point of view is the moral or uh, filial union. Union with Christ is described in terms of an alliance of friendship and trust between the man, Jesus, and God. The brotherly fellowship that exists between believers. A sentimental union that exists between friends. That's what, so union, union with Christ is, let's all be buddies. Be my friend. Be my friend. Um, it's God's natural presence in the human spirit. In other words, we're all good. We all have God's goodness in us. Um, this would be a complete denial of, of depravity of man. Basically, it's saying, you know, no, the depravity, of, depravity does not exist in man. God's goodness exists in man from the beginning. And, of course, that's a backwards relationship completely. But we just need to, uh, we just need to let God's goodness come out of us. We need to build a new social order by activating the God inside of us. Um, and completely, of course, glossing over the work of Christ and the fact that we are sinful and we are depraved and we do need uh, to be saved from our sinful condition. This completely ignores that, just glosses over that. It's not even part of the equation. Uh, we're just we're good. We just need to make. We just need to bring out our inner goodness. That's the the moral filial union of Christ. Then there's the, uh, the covenantal union, the, the covenant point of view. And the covenant point of view, that would be, those are, you know, sometimes we have uh, little squabbles with those who are the, uh, our covenant brothers. Basically, covenant theology would be sometimes called replacement theology, that the church has replaced Israel. And, and um, um, I don't, you know, Steve has mentioned this from the pulpit many, many times, some of the little disagreements that we have with uh, with uh, the covenant um, uh, uh, theologians. But you know what? 
anything they believe does not discount their salvation or our salvation. Are there some disagreements between us? Yes. Does it affect our salvation? No, it does not. But we do have some disagreements. We have little disagreements. One of them is union with Christ. And it's a very tiny little technical definition or disagreement or conflict, and I'll try to explain it. The covenant theologians view union with Christ as encompassing the whole scope of salvation from eternity past to eternity future. And there's, and, and there's a lot of truth to that. Union with Christ, though, here's the disagreement. Union with Christ is not a discrete separate step in the order of salvation, but embraces the whole scope of salvation from eternity past to future. Now, the, 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 uh, the evangelical point of view that, uh, that I'm going to take is that, and the non-covenantal point of view, is that union with Christ is a step in the order of salvation. It is an event that, that, that happens, and we'll get to that in, in a few minutes. But using the language of salvation, uh, Christians are elected in Christ. This would be the covenant point of view. Everything is done in Christ. We are elected in Christ. So we are already united in Christ from our election on. The union has taken place from the beginning. We are elected in Christ, and then we are called. We are effectually called in that union of Christ. We are regenerated in that union of Christ. We are justified in Christ. We are sanctified in Christ. We are glorified in Christ. Everything happens in Christ. The, the elect and Christ were formally united. Formally united, it's like it's a done deal in eternity past. Our formal union with Christ was done in eternity past at our election. And the union was then objectively brought about. It was is basically um, given a stamp of approval with the incarnation and the atoning work of Christ and was also given a second stamp of approval by the believer's experience in Christ in which we personally uh, acknowledge our faith, acknowledge Christ by our faith. And so the, the formal union with Christ takes place in an eternity past at our, at our election, but we then have, the, uh, we have Christ to put the stamp of approval on that and then our own belief as the stamp, stamp of approval on that. The, uh, the covenant point of view would be that union of Christ is not something that's just tacked on. Uh, in other words, it's not a separate event in the order of salvation. It's not an item in the order that we, that we looked at uh, before. Union with Christ is fully formed from the beginning, from eternity past. So that's the covenant point of view. Now, this is pretty close to <laughs> what we believe anyway. I think the big difference is, is it a discrete specific step in the order of salvation. That's, if you wanted to point to something, you'd say, well, that's the difference. The covenant theologians would say, no, it's not a discrete separate step. Uh, an evangelical point of view would be, yes, it's a, it's a, it's a separate point of view. And that's, the, that's what I'm going to talk about, is, is why, why I believe, why I personally believe that it is a separate event, why it is a discrete step. But I'm happy to report that if I'm wrong, it's not going to hurt anybody's salvation. Okay? So <laughs> but, 
but it uh, but it is it is what uh, um, uh, it, it's a, a, a viewpoint that is more more common than not, and so I'm pretty safe that way, if if that helps at all. Um, it's closely aligned. Uh, with the Reformed and the Puritan point of view. Matter of fact, a lot of the the, uh, information that I'm uh, teaching uh, today came from not only Bruce Demarest's The Cross and Salvation, because that's the viewpoint given in in, in that text that we use in BTI, but I I also drew heavily from um, uh, Joel Beakey's book on Puritan theology, basically systematic theology from the Puritan point of view. Uh, which is closely uh, aligned with the Reformed point of view also. So I'm on pretty safe ground in case I I, I worried anybody there. Pretty safe ground. Um, The Reformed theologians of the 17th century held to a threefold union with Christ, which uh, which covenant uh, theologians would totally agree with. A threefold union with Christ. First of all, uh, uh, the three parts of the union with Christ are... God's imminent, number one, his imminent, two, transient, and three, applicatory works. Imminent union, so the three parts, the imminent union refers to being elected in union with Christ from all eternity. Covenant theologians would totally agree with that. That's right. His imminent eternal union uh, in eternity past. And then the transient union transient redemptive union that refers to uh, the believer's union in Christ because of events in time in time past now when we mean in, we're not we're not saying eternity past we're saying time past transient means 2000 years ago if we were to translate ourselves that's the transient part translate ourselves 2000 years uh, prior to this where would we be we'd be in the time of Christ his life on earth, his death and resurrection, his work on the cross. And so the second part of our union with Christ would be, uh, would be the, the, the work of Christ in the past. So that's the transient part of our union, his work. And finally, the third part, the applicatory union, or, or our experience, um, that refers to the believer's union with Christ in the present time. And so basically what we're looking at is eternity past, we're elected, and then we have 2,000 years ago when Christ died, Christ came to earth, died, and rose. And then the present time for the believer, where the believer then has the opportunity to experience uh, experience Christ's forgiveness in their own life and apply apply that to their own life, the applicatory union, where we apply Christ to us. We are united in Christ in all three ways. Nobody comes to salvation if you're not elected. If you're not elected in eternity, then you will not come to salvation. No one comes to salvation without Christ's intersection. Inter- intercession. Without the intercession of Christ, without his work on uh, uh, death and resurrection, then there's no salvation. And without our actually applying that through our faith, there's no salvation. 
And so all three of these are, are needed for our salvation. The, the Puritan uh, point of view here, the Puritan evangelical reformed point of view, is that union with Christ is a discrete step in the order of salvation. There's an experiential union with Christ. There's a relationship between a Christ, between a person's union with Christ and the believer's regeneration. So now we're getting into those steps. Election, effectual call, regeneration. Okay, this is where we're thinking, this is where we're saying, okay, union with Christ, if it's a discrete step, it happens somewhere in here. Uh, uh, in the, uh, closely after the effectual calling. The point of differentiation, though, again, between the covenant point of view and the Puritan Reformed Evangelical point of view would be um, our election being formally established in eternity past versus decreed by God. Our union with Christ was decreed by God in eternity past, but not fully realized until the work of Christ was done and until our belief was in place. Our own belief was in place. And so that, again, is the big difference between the covenantal point of view uh, and the evangelical Puritan uh, reform point of view. But a person's actual salvation doesn't depend on this viewpoint. Both points of view in the same way. They both in the same way. We're, we're united with Christ for eternity. We're glorified. We go to heaven. <laughs> so uh, it, it's not a matter of, uh, of our salvation being real or not. Now, for most evangelicals, union with Christ is a specific, discrete step in the order of salvation. The, the believer has died with Christ and is raised to a new life with him. To be in Christ describes then the believer's new environment, transferred from the domain of sin to a new spiritual life. Union with Christ marks the end of the old existence and the beginning of the new. That's why we would say it's a discrete step. There's a definite difference between the old and the new. When we were in sin and now we're in Christ. The, the new reality, once you are in Christ, is that there is a supernatural union, and so that's that discrete event. There's a supernatural union effected by God. God causes this to happen. Not human initiative, but God causes this union to happen. It's a vital union in which spiritual life and fruitfulness are imparted uh, to the believer in their experience. We have a, a fruitful experience in Christ, part of being in church together and fellowshipping together and praying together and holding each other up in, in all sorts of ailments and problems, that's part of our experience, that, that vital union, that life-giving union that we have uh, in fellowship with each other and in fellowship in Christ. The human soul retains its individuality while being energy energized by the Spirit. We don't cease to become humans. Of course, the downside to that is we still have a bent towards sin. Okay? We still blow it sometimes, don't we? We don't become God in God, like the ontological point of view would say. 
It's mysterious, as Paul said. It's mysterious and that Scripture doesn't tell us precisely the nature of this relationship of union with God. It is, even going through the Scriptures, there's still this mysteriousness of, but how does it even happen? How does God do that? Um, it's kind of like the Trinity. How do they do that? How are they three in one? I'm not going to get into that because that would be another two hours. We have a lot of illustrations and analogies that I've already mentioned that we read in Scripture uh, to help us understand union with Christ. But again, it, it's, it's a mystery. It's eternal. It's uh, an unbroken union. Uh, the union between Christ and his people is individual for us, and it's also uh, ecclesi- ecclesiastical. It's the whole church is in union with Christ. We as individuals are united with him, and so is the church. Now, as I said, I'm taking the point of view that union with Christ is a discrete individual event in the order of salvation. So how the events would be ordered uh, usually make sense. I mean, for example, is it pretty obvious that you have to be elected first and glorified last? That makes a lot of sense. First comes election, you go through the list, last comes election. A lot of them are no-brainers, like, yeah. You've got to be elected first. When you die, when Christ returns, we get a glorified body. So there are some events in the order that make perfect sense. But there are others that it's like, well, I don't know. Are you regenerated first? Are you born again first? Are you made new first? Or are you justified first? You know, what about those two? Those two often get a lot of uh, uh, debate. What comes first? Regeneration. What's the order of those two? And how, again, how does union with Christ fit into this? The Puritan theologian uh, Halliburton looked at this question from both of those sides. Regeneration, justification. Justification, regeneration. Which way? He looked at this from both sides. Are we regenerated first and then justified? If that's true, how can God impart his pure image? How can he make us new? Um if we remain under the curse of death, that means not justified. If we're not justified, how would he, why would he make somebody brand new if we, haven't, if we haven't had correct legal standing with Christ? How does that happen? How can the heart be purified before faith? How can we be purified if we don't have faith yet? How does that happen? And the heart has to be justified, how? By faith. We are justified by faith alone. If we become Christians by the word of God and the word is received by faith, then shouldn't justification by faith come before regeneration? But if justification comes before regeneration, then the church has had this backwards for centuries because this has always been the church point of view is that regeneration comes first and then justification. So we've got to figure out why, we're, why was the church wrong for a thousand years? What happened? The larger question is this. To sum all this up, how can a dead, non-regenerate soul be the subject of justification? If we're dead in our sins, why in the world would we be justified? Why would we have correct, right, legal standing before God if we are dead? How can that happen? Of course, the answer is that's why regeneration has to come first. You have to be made alive before you can be justified. How can a dead soul, on the other hand, assent to Christ? How can somebody dead choose Christ, approve of Christ, and rest in Christ? 
The fruit of faith, justification, needs a root, and that root, of course, is the regeneration, the new birth, needs a root that's not dead. And so, the, uh, so there are all these questions that come up about the order of regeneration versus justification. And again, how does union with Christ fit into this? Well, the answer of regeneration before justification and why that would be the way it really needs to be um, comes in the answer of union with Christ. Union with Christ helps answer that dilemma of why we have to be regenerated first before we're justified. Now first, remember that union with Christ has three stages, three elements. The imminent eternal, the transient, redemptive, historical, and the applicatory or experiential on the part of the believer. The Puritans and the Reformed theologians generally held to that threefold union that we just mentioned. For example, if we look at Ephesians, so let's... Ephesians is our go-to text at this point. So Ephesians 1. <clears throat> Looking at Ephesians 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be made holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoption of sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose in his will. So that is the eternal stage, the eminent eternal stage of union with Christ, as given in Ephesians 1, 4. The transient redemptive stage, uh, the historical union, that's, that goes back to Christ on earth and his mediatorial death and his resurrection. We're short on time, so I'm not going to read all that scripture, but, but we have tons and tons of scripture testifying the fact of Christ's work uh, here on earth. And then the, the applicatory, the mystical union, the, the believer's experience. Look at Ephesians 2, uh, particularly the verses 5 and 6. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places with Christ we were made alive in Christ okay that's living here on earth we were made alive in Christ so that's the applicatory side each part of this threefold union relates to the others in the fact that they uh, we the, the trinity is involved god the father god the son the holy spirit God elects us. Christ uh, is obedient to the to the Father by coming to earth and dying and and, and is resurrected, resurrected. And then here on earth, our experience, we exercise our faith, and we are empowered to believe. So we can view union in, in Christ in all three of these ways. Nobody comes to faith if you haven't been elected in, in, in eternity. Nobody comes to faith without the benefits of Christ's sacrifice, and nobody comes to faith without exercising their faith. Now, I'm going to... I always have a tough time, especially since it's been a while since I've taught, uh, judging, judging time. And so I'm going to skip a little bit <laughs> so that we're not here till 12 o'clock. <laughs> But I want to talk about the whole concept of, of, again, of union with Christ and this order. 
getting getting to the final point here. The the Puritans, such as um, Thomas Goodwin, John Owen, uh, and, and others, used a really really great word um, that I um, it, it almost uh, and and I and I just read a form of this word when, from Ephesians. And going back to Ephesians um, chapter two, it says. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. We were made alive. The Puritans used the word apprehend. The Holy Spirit apprehended us. The Holy Spirit grabbed a hold of us. We were elected in eternity past. We were effectually called... And just after that effectual call, that call that was effective, that we, we heard the gospel and it's like, hey, that makes sense to me. That was the Holy Spirit apprehending you. That was when you were being united with Christ. What was planned in eternity past and the work that Christ did 2,000 years ago is now brought together in your own experience in that now the Lord is apprehending you. He's grabbing hold of you and saying, believe. And you are saying, I will. Why? Because he gave you the ability to. He gave you the ability to believe. And as we continue reading in Ephesians, Ephesians uh, 2, uh, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith, and this not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that uh, no one should boast. And so, why, the, uh, not why, but when, when we are saved through faith, that comes as a result of being made alive. The made part, that's the apprehending part. Made alive, that's the regeneration part. So if I were to go back to the order of, of salvation, we would say the order is, you're elected in eternity past. Number two, there's the effectual calling. You hear the word. And on that hearing, you are then apprehended. If you're elected, the Lord grabs hold of you and says, you are mine. And guess what? I have new faith for you. All of this is going on inside and you don't even know it. You have no clue that this is going on. But the Lord does. The Lord knows. He's apprehended you and he's given you faith so that you can believe in the work of Jesus Christ. And so that you can now be justified. You can now be given right standing. Because you now have faith that has been activated by the Holy Spirit. Where did that faith come from? came from the Holy Spirit. Came from, came from the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost work of apprehending you and making you alive. So it's, uh, it's, it's pretty exciting, I think, to think about her, I know, I know on the one hand you'd say, no, this was not exciting. But <laughs> it's exciting just to know the detail that, that has been put into our salvation that we are totally unaware of. And yet behind the scenes, what was happening in eternity past that we were elected, that we were called effectively because of that uh, election, that we were apprehended 
unbeknownst to us, the Lord grabbed hold of us and said, you are mine who will believe. You are mine who will believe. You are given new life. You are regenerated. You are a new person in Christ. You are now in Christ. I have united myself to you. And so now you are pure. And now I can justify you. Now you can activate your faith. Now you can activate your faith and be justified. You have right legal standing before God. And once you've been justified, you are then, we then are on our journey to sanctification. So, so this lesson is focused kind of on the, our salvation experience behind the scenes, what's going on backstage in our salvation. Um, our union with Christ and regeneration are closely connected, um, uh, very closely co- uh, connected, as we've just said. Our faith is only possible because of Christ through the Spirit uh, as joined ourself and, in re- and, and, and our, our responses, we believe. We believe. Um, like I said, I know that uh, uh, I've, I've gotten into some detail that some of you might say, well, that's nice, but I just believe. And you know what? That's what's important. <laughs> that's the bottom line, is to believe in the work of Christ to to have made him the Lord of your life, and you understand that. And so we might not get all these little nuances of the order of salvation, of the uh, ordo salutis, but what a blessing to know that we have indeed be, uh, been saved by grace. Bottom line, we have been saved by grace. All of that one together. All right, let's pray. Our Father, we, do, we thank you for... For salvation, we thank you for electing us and for sending your Son to uh, to die for us, to to do the work that you appointed Him to. In eternity past, you appointed us to salvation, and all these details of of being united with Christ, of you apprehending us, of of grabbing hold of us, and we weren't even aware of it, and yet. You were doing that work inside of us. You were making us new. We were born again. We were being purified uh, in an instant so that we could then have legal standing, correct, right legal standing before you. We are justified before you so that we can now lead a sanctified life. Uh, what a privilege it is to, to be able to serve you, to be able to, to call you our Lord. Thank you for saving us. Uh, even if we get lost in the details uh, in eternity, um, what matters most is that you are our Lord and Savior, and we thank you for that. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.